You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 29th of October 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. O que ocorreu hoje nas urnas não foi a vitória de um partido, mas a celebração de um país. What happened at the polling stations today was not the victory of a party, but the celebration of freedom by a country. The commitment we're undertaking with Brazilians was of forming a decent government, committed exclusively with the country and with our people. And I can guarantee that it will be so. It's official, if no less depressing. Brazil's next president, Jair Bolsonaro. My guests, Oscar Juadiola Rivera, Brian Klaas and Fernando Augusto Pacheco will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Saturday's shooting at a synagogue in Pittsburgh, the idea of Europe, Germany and the West without Angela Merkel, and does anyone deserve to have an airport named after them? That's all to come on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Oscar Huadiola Rivera, reader in law at Birkbeck University here in London, and Brian Class, assistant professor in global politics at University College London and a columnist for the Washington Post. We're also joined for this first item by Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Welcome all. And we start in Brazil, where the one time that one might have preferred the polls to be wrong, they weren't. Brazil has elected to its presidency the far-right populist Jair Bolsonaro, a man with a long history of ugly remarks about women gay people and black people, and a somewhat creepy fetish for the idea of government by the military, which was not an outstanding success last time it was attempted in Brazil. The most charitable assessment of his victory is that it reflects the degree to which Brazilians were quite rightly wearied of the chronic corruption and incompetence of their politicians. But is it possible that many this many people actually agree with him? Um, Fernando, uh, Monocle's resident Brazilian, uh, we should put this to you first. It's, it's always the question, I think, where somebody like Bolsonaro and vaguely similar creatures like Trump or Duterte are concerned. Did people elect him despite of all the terrible things he says, does and thinks, or actually because of them? Well, I think it's a mixture of both because, you know, in, in, in Brazil, to be honest, I think there was a lot of people that actually do believe in what Bolsonaro said, but, you know, after the military dictatorship, it was very much a taboo to say that you were quite right-wing in Brazil. So there was this kind of 10-15% of the population, in my opinion, that ha- shared these ideas. But I like to believe that the majority of people, they voted to Bolsonaro in despair, in a way, uh, because, you know, uh, strong rejection for the Workers' Party, because of the corruption scandals, and, and they they are feeling the, fi- the economic recession in the country as well. So they voted not because they believe in him, in a way, but, uh, but because they, they felt they, they didn't have an option. But again, there are those 15% that are very much so agree with his uh, views. Just to follow that up, Fernando, the, there was a conventional wisdom or a rather wishful thinking that certainly developed during Donald Trump's run for the presidency that if and when elected, he'd probably calm down once in office. All the, you know, the insane stuff he was saying was just a show to rile the base up. Uh, and obviously it turned out that Trump, whatever else you might say about him, pretty much, uh, you know, what you see is what you get. Whereas Bolsonaro, 
is at least a professional politician. He does have some experience in politics. Uh, he has been a congressman for a great many years and so forth. Is it possible that once in office he will realise I can't carry on like that as actually president of one of the world's biggest democracies? Well... I think it is possible because, in fact, a lot of political parties in Brazil, they're not very much ideological. They go with whoever wins the election. It happened with the Workers' Party, with the PSDB as well. So, and, and I mean, and he's surrounding himself with quite a lot of politicians that are not from his own party. Uh, so, to be honest, I do think he will ca come down. But again, I'm not saying this will be good for the country. And and I, I don't think our institutions will allow him to uh, to remain as erratic as he has been in the campaign. At least that's what I like to believe. Oscar, how will this be seen elsewhere in South America? Because it's not just in Brazil, of course, that people uh, whimsically raising the spectre of, of military government are likely to cause a certain amount of anguish. Well, I revise every single newspaper in Latin America today, and all of them have the same headline, Brazil back in the hands of the military. Because it's not just Bolsonaro, we should remember that 22 members, former members of the army, are also taking positions in Congress. Including his vice president, obviously, exactly, who was sacked because uh, uh, because of his involvement uh, with uh, uh, torture. Fifty eight other former members of the military are going to assume positions as uh, governors and so on and so forth. In total, almost 80 of them, including the governor of Rio de Janeiro, who uh, has been on record saying that he wants to push for the further militarization of the favelas. Nothing good is going to come out of this one. Uh, the same week, the same weekend that we had the worst anti-Semitic attack in the United States, we had a fascist, and let us call it what he is, a fascist, named as president of the second biggest country in Latin America. We've never had anything quite like this. This is unprecedented. I cannot see anyone calming down here. I think this is going to be very, very troubling. Uh, Brian, he does already appear to have at least one uh, friend in high office. Perhaps, unsurprisingly, it is the president of the United States. Uh, does this or should this alter the way that the rest of the world will see Brazil and should deal with Brazil? Or don't we really know what we're dealing with yet? I think, I think it obviously has to change calculations about how you see Brazil. I mean, you know... This is a fundamentally different tack from somebody going from, you know, left wing to right wing. This is genuinely neo-fascist rule. And I think it's incumbent upon us to really state what this guy has said, right? So he has said that he is in favor of torture, that he thinks he'll need to kill 30,000 Brazilians to get things back on track, that black activists should go back to the zoo because they're animals. I mean, this is not stuff where it's about left versus right. This is about decency and civility and authoritarianism. And, you know, decency is going out the window with Bolsonaro going into power. So, to me, I think that, you know, calculations about how you look at Brazil, they should be with the aim of trying to tame him. In other words, if you underreact to this, you may actually embolden him. If you react appropriately now and chastise him, you may actually force him to behave. And I think that this is something where, you know, it's a, sh it's a real shame, but extremely predictable that Donald Trump congratulated him because this is a, a, a time in which a normal U.S. president saying we believe in fundamental basic respect for human rights and democracy and rule of law would have been powerful in, in you know, responding to this unprecedented event. Uh, Fernando, we will doubtless be talking about this much more on our programs all through the week, but just a final thought on this one from you for now. You've spoken before when we've talked about this that y you actually 
actually now feel quite uncomfortable wearing your Brazil football shirt in public because you're worried that people are going to assume that as a result of that you you are on board with Bolsonaro. Uh, does the spectacle of this person, whose who's myriad deficiencies were just eloquently adumbrated by Brian there, uh, being elected president of your country make you feel uh, differently about Brazil than you might have done this time last year, for example? Well, absolutely. And, you know, I, I did mention about the Brazilian T-shirt, but it was so sad hearing even from my mother. You know, she voted uh, for the Workers' Party, I can say that. And she said, I... I cannot wear red on the streets because she would be she would fear that she could be punched by someone and and that's the thing you know even though bolsonaro he did kind of say that you know there's been some uh, hate attacks in brazil from bolsonaro supporters uh, towards adult supporters so he said oh Basically, it's not my fault, but of course it's his fault. You know, he's normalizing this type of speech and you see this more and more. Every single day, there's uh, like a handful uh, of stories. And that's, that's quite scary, actually, for my country in a way. He just reasserted that today. He said that he is going to govern for God and Constitution. Anyone who knows anything about the recent history of Latin America knows what that means and it's nothing good. Okay, well, let's move along slightly and look at the United States, which continues to learn that electing a populist demagogue to its highest office is not a cost-free experiment. It should be acknowledged that the shooter now charged with the murder of 11 mostly elderly people in a Pittsburgh synagogue on Saturday does not seem to be a fan of Donald Trump, in that Robert Bowers appears to believe Trump unacceptably liberal. But Bowers did, was rather, or is a habitue of the swamp of far-right anti-immigrant conspiracy theory, which Trump has done much to encourage and from which Trump draws much of his most fervid support. Um, Brian, it is a, it, it's an event which is, is, is hideous in absolutely av- every aspect, um, which is something I think we should acknowledge before possibly making what might be a slightly glib comparison. But is this, is this something unusual and different or is this, and it's a horrible thing to have to say out loud, just another American mass shooting? I think it is different. And I think it's different because the frequency and the scope of the types of attacks that are occurring are coinciding with rhetoric from the president. So, you know, when you look back on violent extremism that's come out of America in the past, you couldn't point to words of the U.S. president amplifying anti-Semitic conspiracy theories right before the attack. The argument against that would be, of course, that America has an immense, if weirdly under-discussed, history of political violence. Yes, that's absolutely true. But this is my point, right? So when these attacks happened, they there was not an ability to say, okay, the president stoked it, right? That they they targeted these people before they were targeted. So we have, in the last couple days, we've had bombs sent to all of Donald Trump's favorite targets, right? People that he has called the enemies of the people when it comes to CNN, and then he blamed them for the bombs after suggesting they were a hoax. With the Jewish synagogue, he amplified a far-right conspiracy theory about George Soros. The Republican leadership said that George Soros was paying for this caravan of migrants coming from Latin America, and that is what triggered this man to go up and shoot a synagogue. So, you know, it's not it doesn't take a massive amount of logical leaps to get from the fact that these conspiracy theories that are being spread by people in positions of power that are then being absolved or minimized by people in positions of power are happening at the same time that Donald Trump is explicitly praising political violence because he said that 
Greg Gianfort, who violently attacked a reporter, was his kind of guy because he used violence. This is different. And that's the thing that really is is so upsetting about this moment is we don't want to say this is just how it always has been. Sure, there's always been violence, but it hasn't been stoked from the Oval Office. And, and that's why, you know, this, this moment where every time something happens, you can point to, okay, but Donald Trump helped radicalize this person. And, and, and we can always look at the rhetoric. The words of the president matter. And I think that, you know, obviously you lay blame on the people who commit the violence, but you have to also think about the context in which they're committing violence and what makes it more likely. And Donald Trump's incendiary language made it more likely that bombs would be sent. He, and he made it more likely that this person would go into a synagogue and shoot up a bunch of people. See, I'm, I'm genuinely, Oscar, not actually sure what I think about this. I, I, I agree, obviously, that Donald Trump has not made a positive or uplifting contribution to the tone of political discourse in the United States or elsewhere. But at what point or is any leader or any public figure responsible for the behaviour of their craziest adherent? If we, if, you know, are we getting here a bit into the realms of you know, blaming the Beatles for Charles Manson? Well, let me say, Andrew, we should stop in the media normalising this kind of uh, behaviour from uh, the leader of the free world. Uh, it is not just a matter of coincidence. Uh, we now have uh, good evidence. For instance, the case of John Matlis, an FBI, FBI operative who was named and attacked by name by Donald Trump and thereafter, a day after, he gets death threats. Uh, we have many of these cases now appearing. It's not just a case of coincidence. It is a conscious effort to prepare a backdrop in which these kinds of crises, as we call them, uh, would or could actually uh, pass, pass to action. Uh, of course, nobody can say that uh, there are direct responsibilities, but there is, a, there is never a direct causation or responsibility when it comes to acts such as this. What there is, and we're certain, we can be certain that that is happening nowadays, is the creation of an atmosphere of violence which allows people like this to feel that they are justified in taking the awful action that they are taking. I want to add to this and be really explicit about this, because I write for the Washington Post. I appear on CNN. And every time that I either have an article published or I go on CNN and criticize Donald Trump, almost every time I get some sort of death threat or, or threatening comment. People who write to me and say, watch your back, right? I mean, this stuff has become routine in my life. And it's not because I'm just somebody who's in public life. It's because Donald Trump calls people like me the enemy of the people and a stain on America and scum. And it didn't happen before. I mean, you talk to my colleagues, they did not receive this volume of death threats when they did this type of normal political engagement that is part of democracy. And so, you know, to me, obviously, it's hard to draw the dot, connect the dots for every single act of violence and every single crazy supporter. But it is absolutely unequivocally true that this has contributed to a climate where people cannot comfortably criticize the president without getting death threats. And that is not something that should be Republican or Democrat. That's something that should be basically a fundamental principle that Americans agree on. Just to follow that up, Brian, and it, it is the evergreen question where Trump is concerned. Do you think he does says this stuff as a matter of actual, coherent, deliberate, thought through policy and strategy? Or is he just a mad old man barking at the television who your fellow citizens have seen fit to elect president? I think there is a strategy here, and I think it's basically a drum up fear while simultaneously attacking the media strategy. I mean, you know, the fact that this has increased and amplified right before the midterm elections, the, the rhetoric around race and immigrants and all these things, uh, while simultaneously accelerating his attacks on the media and doubling down on them, even after, you know, CNN was, was sent a pipe bomb. 
this is happening before the elections for a reason. Trump thinks he's going to win because of it. And, and they've basically, you know, said the caravan is the defining issue of the midterms. And, and, and to compare the idea that people walking to the U.S. border to seek asylum is the thing we should be paying attention to when Jewish people are being gunned down in synagogues and prominent people who criticize the president are getting sent pipe bombs in the mail is just so indicative of the bigotry that has become his platform. And so, you know, to me, it, it's just non-comparable. And yet this is this, the strategy that the Republicans seem to have embraced uh, in this era of Trump. Uh, and it's absolutely right. The proof of that is that uh, the script is being repeated elsewhere in the Americas. We were, we were talking about Brazil, but this has happened before. It happened in Colombia when these kinds of name-calling was done consciously and deliberately, and the result of that were deaths, thousands of them. We must stop that right now. We must stop normalizing this kind of situation. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You are listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Oscar Guardiola Rivera and Brian Class. Coming up next, it had to happen eventually. Angela Merkel sets her exit date. Curtains up. Premiering in Monocle's October issue is our very first culture preview. From big box film releases to the art market's latest moves, we guide you through all you need to watch, see and read this autumn. On our global tour, we take a peek into Helsinki's newest museum to find out how Finland's art scene is stepping up its game and consider the future of Nordic noir. Is the Scandi bubble about to burst? Not to mention more finds from Switzerland to Taiwan. In our fashion pages, our biannual Top 50 will deliver all the scarves, coats and knits you need to keep cosy and suitably sharp. Autumnal breeze or not, Tom Ford isn't afraid to bear it all. We hear from the American designer on why it's the perfect time to launch a line of underwear. We sit down with Iceland's Prime Minister to find out how the left-wing environmentalist thawed her countrymen's suspicion of politicians and get a few tips from developers and retailers making the high street worth celebrating. Plus, we meet the architects rethinking our homes for a more sustainable future. The Monocle October issue is out now on all good newsstands. Do get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. And you're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Millister. With me are Oscar Guardiola Rivera and Brian Klaas. Now, for the last few years especially, fretful centrist liberal Democrats have regarded the chancellorship of Angela Merkel in Germany as one fixed point of pragmatic sanity in a world which often appears increasingly unmoored. The bad news on this front is that she's going. The good news is that she's given herself three years and her country and the world that long to get used to the idea. Following another battering for her Christian Democratic Union in a local election, this time in Hesse, she has announced that she will stand down as CDU leader in December and as Chancellor at the end of her current term in 2021, after what will have been an astonishing 16 years in the job. Oscar, uh, is it time for her to go? Well, uh, perhaps the question is, uh, who will fill that vacuum? Perhaps uh uh, one can understand why she's going. Uh, the time uh, has come insofar as, uh, you know, all political figures uh, uh, face a date of exhaustion. Let's let's put it that way. And in and her 16, case... 16 years, I mean, actually, weirdly, it's a, it's in, the American, in the American, in American context, German context, it's not that unusual. That's about how long Helmut Kohl did. But nonetheless, exactly. it's still a long time. Exactly. And, and in her case, uh, the political conditions are, are changing. She's been attacked on, on immigration. She's been attacked on, on different issues. There are parts of the German electorate who are going left. Other parts of the of the German electorate are going uh, also to the far right, which is very, very, very worrying, 
given the the, the European context. Uh, and so one can understand why the time has come for her to go. But again, the, the, the question is, uh, uh, you know, given that politics abhors a vacuum even more than nature, what will, what will uh, feel that vacuum? Well, exactly that, Brian. Obviously, the last couple of years haven't been the best of advertisements for the 22nd Amendment. But, but generally, I think the United States has it more or less right. You get eight years, that's about your lot. And then you get, um, you know a couple of months between the election and handing off to the the next one to, you know, sew prawns into the curtains and perform perform what other sort of pranks that you might want to uh, perpetrate upon your successors. But... Are we? Are you a fan of the long goodbye? Because three years uh, is an eternity in politics, and as 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 Oscar points out, uh, politics and nature abhor a vacuum, and she will now be seen. She'll be seen now as a placeholder, won't she, for for a very long time. Well, you're exactly right, and that's why I don't think she'll survive to 2021. I think that she will inevitably end up calling elections early and being replaced in some way. I mean, some some German political analysts are saying, you know, it's a matter of months now, um, let alone three years, which uh, which is wishful thinking. But I think with with her case, you know, you're, I'm sort of two minds of this because I absolutely agree with you. I think that. 16 years in power is too long. I think that, you know, I was very critical of Hillary Clinton running in a way because I thought that the idea that we have the Bush and Clinton dynasties governing the most powerful country on earth, that prospect for, you know, 30 years with a Barack Obama break in the middle uh, was not healthy for a democracy. But that being said, these are not normal times. And the, the worry is that Merkel is a very, very skilled politician. And so if the replacement is not and the rise of the AFD continues and then they manage to cobble together a coalition which puts the AFD in some sort of political power, that's a very scary prospect. And it doesn't look likely right now, but, you know, as we've been talking about with Brazil or the United States, things can change very quickly. So the worry is all of a sudden, as soon as Merkel gets out, the floodgates open and a lot can change in German politics and we might not we might not be happy with what comes next. Oscar, do you think that is a realistic prospect? Certainly where the AFD are concerned and they, they did do quite well at the weekend in Hesse. I think I'm right in saying that was the first time they'd won seats there as well. Um, but every German party so far has been absolutely punctilious in saying under absolutely no circumstances would we ever govern with these people. As Brian just pointed out, uh, uh, you know, three years is a long time and a lot can change. And we have seen uh, parties changing their minds uh, very, very quickly. Uh, of course, uh, I'm trying to be, to be, you know, to continue to be optimistic and uh, think that uh, uh, as uh, part of the German electorate moved to the Greens and, and to the left, some kind of uh, uh, progressive coalition might uh, uh, form there that will withstand the challenge of, a of AFD. Uh, but at the same time, given the context in Europe and in the Americas, uh, I think we must be very, very cautious. Uh, Brian, do you have any clear idea, because I confess to being stumped here myself, what voters in Hesse are so angry about? I mean, it's it's a nice part of a nice country. Uh, there's very, very little unemployment. The economy is booming. And this this just strikes me as something we're seeing a lot in the Western world in general. People who have no idea how good they have it uh, throwing a tantrum for reasons which don't really bear an awful lot of analysis. Well, you're completely right. Um, this is, you know, one of the patterns that political scientists have picked up on is that the places with 
the lowest levels of immigration are often the most anti-immigrant. Um, you know, the places that tend to be okay in terms of economics sometimes are actually the ones that are most susceptible to populist messaging. So in a way, it's about identity for these places more than it is about actual suffering or hardship. And I, I presume, though I'm not an expert on German politics, that a similar dynamic is at play here. Okay, well, finally tonight, uh, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has today officially declared open Istanbul's new airport, which Turkey hopes will one day become the world's busiest. It will replace the current Istanbul Atatürk airport, but so far as it's possible to tell, it will not adopt the name of the founder of the Turkish state, possibly because Erdogan is still wondering if it would be too much of a reach to name it after himself. Um from which we wanted to extrapolate a discussion of the 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 wisdom and propriety of naming airports after people um what do you think oscar should they should they just be left as insert name of city plus airport i think so uh, i mean for the most part people never remember those names uh, and they have no clue about uh, uh, you know as to the their significance um, in fact uh, i uh, still uh, uh, hold on to the name of uh, Bogotá's international airport, El Dorado. That kind of mythical <laughs> uh, place is exactly what you had in mind before when traveling was pleasurable. You might as well just name an airport after Oz or, or, or Atlantis <laughs> I'll or be, somewhere. I'll be happy with that. That would be pretty cool. Um, Brian, is there, I, I was looking into this earlier and I, obviously I, w- I focused on my own home country of Australia. We, we are a, a literal people in terms of naming places. This is the, the country of the, the snowy mountains and the Great Sandy Desert. Um, And in keeping with that, we seem to have named almost no airports after people, apart from the one in Sydney, which is named after Sir Charles Kingsford Smith, the great Australian aviator. And that naming them after aviators seems at least reasonable. And there are airports uh, named after Butch O'Hare, Yuri Gagarin, Chuck Yeager. Um, is, is, Is that allowed? Well, we've got one where I'm from in Minneapolis. Um, the Minneapolis-St. Paul Airport has two terminals. One is the Humphrey Terminal, named after Hubert Humphrey, the former U.S. senator. And the other is Charles Lindbergh, the famous ah. aviator. Um, now famous this, for other things. Yes, well, this, this, <laughs> this is precisely the problem with naming airports. On the one hand, it's very nice. It builds sort of the identity around the city, the identity around the state, whatever it is. Uh, but on the other hand, people who seem to be good at the time by past morals can shift, can quickly shift. And I mean, Charles Lindbergh was a Nazi sympathizer and an anti-Semite. So uh, not exactly the person you want to have your airport named after as you're welcoming people. Thankfully, it's the only, uh, it's a very small terminal and it only accepts international arrivals from Iceland. So uh, it minimizes the damage to <laughs> Minneapolis's, uh, Minneapolis's international reputation. But one of my favorite airports actually is called Don Wang in Thailand. I was telling Oscar about this earlier but uh, it's it's a former Royal Air Force base in Thailand with two runways but between the runway is a golf course and it's still open so I went and I golfed there and you're you're hitting golf balls like 20 meters away from these planes taking off and in between the fourth and fifth hole you have to wait while the little arm goes down when the plane goes across the runway and then you cross and go to the fifth tee it's amazing hey, Oscar can you, can you get away with it if you name it after historical figures who are so long dead that everybody's pretty much made up their mind what they think of them I, I'm thinking of Another example from real life, I will be flying to Venice on Saturday and therefore landing at Marco Polo Airport. And that's 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 a reasonable sort of person to name an airport after, isn't it? Sort of the local boy made good, great in, but also great international voyager, etc. That's as reasonable as naming an airport after a wonderful uh, singer-composer. So I do hope that uh, the Brazilian airport named after Antonio Carlos Jobim conserves that name and is never named after 
Mr. Bolsonaro. Is it, is it ever too soon, Brian? Because I think that's also a problem with naming things after people. There is, of course, the airport on Madeira, which named it after their local boy named good Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, and obviously there, there may be a, a some something of a character issue there, but also there's the fact that he, he's still doing the thing he's doing. Yeah, I mean, you do have some airports that get named renamed very quickly. Ronald Reagan Airport in Washington, D.C. is an example where it was pretty quick and they, they renamed it after a recent U.S. president. So, you know, I think there is something to be said for letting their historical legacy shake out. If, if you had done that, you wouldn't have named it Lindbergh Terminal, certainly. Um, although there is although, still... But he was a great aviator. Could, yeah, could, could you is... not call it Lindbergh Terminal except for the Nazi yeah. stuff? <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember as a kid, you walk into the terminal and there's the, the model of the Spirit of St. Louis, the plane he flew over, uh, hanging from the ceiling. So as a kid, it dazzled me. Of course, my parents later informed me that he was a Nazi sympathizer and that took the sheen off a bit. Um Oscar, can you think of any any people who you would like to have an airport named after them who who don't have one as yet? Uh, well, I would uh, like uh, uh, you know an airport in Central America named after uh, Monsignor Oscar Romero. There you go. Uh, I think he deserves it. He's a saint now, so at the very least that makes sure. But that, see, the thing uh, is, but this is at the point at which I quite like the idea of naming airports after famous people because then people think, well, who was that, and then look them up. So enlighten us, if you would. Well, Monsignor Romero was uh, a uh, uh, infamously assassinated in El Salvador together with uh, three other Jesuits by a death squad. And uh, he became a saint just uh, about a month ago. Uh, so uh, at the very least, you're certain that when you're touching down, you're touching on holy ground. Well, on that somewhat uplifting note, an Oscar's campaign to rename that airport starts now. Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Oscar Guardiola Rivero and Brian Class, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Barbara Maimone. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. Music next at 1900, it's the Monocle Culture Show. More on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House is back tomorrow at 1800 London. I'm your host for that as well. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Thank you.